0: The following message is distributed by the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. From John 17, verses 17 through 20, Jesus praying to the Father, praying for us. Sanctify them in the truth, Your Word is truth. As You sent Me into the world, so I have sent them into the world, and for their sake I consecrate Myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in Me through their Word. Let's pray. Father, as I think about uh, this passage that we are going to look at this morning, I, I can still remember uh, after, after reading it, maybe for the first time, telling a couple of friends of mine, um, I don't know for sure, but I think my life will never be the same. And I was right, you, you changed me. You did a great work in me. There is, a, there is a before and after in my own life from this verse, from, these, from this passage, and I, I thank you for it. It was pure and simple, a work of you, a God who is full of, as we just sang, full of loving-kindness, And mercy. You're you're just a good, good God to your children, to the Israel of God. And what you have done so that we could sing and sing with all sincerity from birth to the grave, we could sing with all sincerity, it is well with my soul what what you have done to make that not a religious churchy fiction but real is is breathtaking it is magnificent and the only reason why i understand even a, a bit of this and any of us do is because of you it's just it's it's simply you working by your spirit in mercy and in power and so I thank you for that, and your, your word tells us that the best way that we can thank you or, so to speak, pay you back for what you have done in the past is to keep on asking you for more, to keep depending upon you. So I ask you now, will you do some of that here now? Will you do it again? Will you do a work here through your word? I don't, I don't have it in me. You're more than enough. Will you do it? Will You fill us with Yourself by Your Spirit? Will You fill us with with a happiness in You that can only come from You? You are the happiest being in the universe. Will You make us more like You right here, right now in our seats, I pray. Amen. So with the turn of the calendar, We often think about progress, Charlie alluded to this, progress made and progress not made, progress desired. The Bible calls this for Christians the process of sanctification. Sanctification, God makes Christians progressively like Himself, primarily more holy. That's the primary characteristic of God. He is, as Charlie prayed, holy, holy, holy. In sanctification, God makes us more holy. Jesus prays in John 17, the verses that I just read, to God, that's why he prays that way, that we would be sanctified. And God does this through two things, through Jesus consecrating himself and through his word. And there is no growth, no growth in holiness, no progression that does not go through the Word of God, and that does not go through the consecrated Jesus. So, as you think about that for the new year, as you think about what you desire, what what growth you see before you, there is no growth that does not go through His Word and through Jesus Himself. So, I invite you to turn with me this morning to the Word and to perhaps the the clearest or most fundamental passage in the Word on this very point about how we progress, how we grow to be like Jesus through or in Jesus. That's the point this morning. And that passage is Romans 6, book of Romans chapter 6. If we want to understand progressing in sanctification, then we need to understand Romans 6. It's just that simple. I chose this text because at this time when we all think about progress, I I want us to understand how progress works. I don't don't want you or me spinning our wheels in futility and frustration. I don't want that for you. I don't want you living in resignation and frustration. I, I want us to actually experience growth in holiness. Or to put it another way, I want you to be happy. I want me to be happy, because as I prayed, to be more holy is to be more like God. In other words, to be like the happiest being in the whole universe, the being who is perfectly happy all the time. That's what we're after today. So we will be focusing mostly on verses 1 through 12 of Romans 6, but I'll begin reading from verse 20 um, of chapter 5. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound by no means? How can we who died to sin still live in it? and your members to God as instruments for righteousness, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. The Word of the Lord. Paul is answering an objection that people then and now make about the gospel. You say that where sin increases, grace just increases all the more. Yeah, that's what I said, Paul says. So the accusation is this. So you're saying that you can just do whatever you want to do and God will forgive you. The implication is you pursue the glory of God by the increase of grace by presuming on His grace, by sinning however you want. That's what evangelical Christians believe, the accusation goes, Paul's saying in verse 1. And his answer is is almost violent. You can hear him spit as he says it. By no means. Of course not. It's absurd. It's absurd. Of course, Jesus didn't die just so we could sin more. Sin leads to death. Jesus came to give us life. It does sound absurd when you, when you hear me say it, when you hear someone else say it. It does sound silly. Yet, in our forgetfulness or in our ignorance, we say, of course that's absurd, and then we skip right down from the first sentence of verse 2 right down to verse 12. We get right busy at not letting sin reign in our mortal bodies. And then the result is exactly what we're accused of. Flatlining in terms of holiness. Nothing changes. Futility. We act like every other religion in the world. We do better, we try to do better, in order to become like God. That's every other religion in the world. But, Paul says, Christianity is, Christianity would have us move from unholiness, from presuming upon the grace of God to holiness through assurance, through faith. We are what we are by faith alone in Christ alone. And we are not, we are not what we should be, Paul says here, Because we forget. Because we live ignorantly of the truth. So three times in this passage, every third verse, Paul says, do you not know? You heard me emphasize this. Do you not know? We know. We know. Know what? Paul says that God united us to Christ through faith. All that is His is now Yours, if you have trusted in Him. The bedrock of all growth is this, to see and comprehend and believe the greatness of what God has done for us in Christ. In Christ, God has made us two things. Verse 11, dead to sin and alive to God. I'll break up the sermon along those two lines. The the first point has to do with the depth of what God has done, and then the second point has to do with living in the the breadth of what God has done. Or to put it another way, I'm trying to make words here that rhyme, you might might call the the first point seeing the magnitude of what God has done, and then living in the (laughs) incertitude of what God has done, in certainty assurance. This is how growth, this is how progress actually happens. So, the first point is this. God united us to Christ. His death to sin is ours. God united us to Christ. His death to sin is ours. Hang your faith here on the verbs and especially the tenses. You were united to Christ. We'll define that in a moment, the word united. And His death to sin, we'll define that in a moment. But His death to sin is yours right now. This is not an if-then statement. I'm not saying if you have sufficient faith, if you put to death your sins, then God will unite you to Christ, and then His death to sin will be yours. No, that's not what Paul's saying. God has already done the decisive act. Verse 2, what is it? We died to sin. We, we who have trusted in Jesus, who have put our faith in Him. Paul has already shown the role of faith in the book of Romans. He's kind of assuming it at this point because he's already talked about it. All of us, all of us naturally push down the, the truth within us that we have a Creator and that He is worth all of our worship. We push that down, and what we do instead is that we take His good gifts, any good thing, friends, sex, money, stuff, food, anything good, and we make them into God replacements, idols, and we worship them instead of Him. All of us do this. That's chapter one. It's called sin. I said all of us do this. Utah Mormons, Colorado Springs Christians, even religious people do it. Everybody does. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. No one is righteous, no, not one. That's chapter two and chapter three. In our best efforts, we, we can't make ourselves righteous. We, we can't progress to become better and better, even if we had a million years to do it. Because, as Paul says in chapter 5, we are all born, he uses this phrase, in Adam. We are all born into our first father's sin and nature. We're all born with a corrupt heart that desires the idols that we make. We're stuck. We need to be saved from ourselves. So this is why it depends on faith, chapter 4. God does it all. His decision to rest or to save us rests entirely on His grace. Not the family you were born into or your performance. All by grace. God did this to bring glory to Himself, to, to display His infinitely perfect self through His infinitely lavish grace upon us that we would praise Him for His grace. That's what God is up to. And faith is the means of Him getting glory because faith in God says He is the one who is infinitely valuable. He is the one worth living and dying for above all else. Faith faith shines a bright spotlight upon Him and says He is the one. Glory to Him. So our faith is in Christ, chapter 3. Faith humbly leans on God for the righteousness necessary to stand before God. Perfect righteousness is given as a gift to us through Jesus. When he died on the cross, all of the Father's wrath for our sin, as Nathan said, was poured out on him instead of us. And all of his righteousness was counted to us all by grace. Glorious gift. to us who believe on Him. So, Paul can say at the beginning of chapter 5 that we have, right now, peace with God. No more hostility, peace. Do Do you have this peace? Because most of this sermon is talking to Christians. But do you have this peace? If not, trust on Christ. Trust on Christ. You will have it. But again, the accusation, put as a question, if we are at peace with God, then, then, then how, does this, how does this grace make any difference in real life? How is it that we are not just living in presumption, living a religious fiction? Or replace it with your own question, why, why do I keep on sinning in this same way? Why am I not making any progress? What is going on? Or maybe it's, maybe it's boredom. Maybe you're bored. Maybe you're bored with God, you're bored with church. Why? Why are you bored? Or maybe it's you struggle with just continual thoughts of condemnation. Or maybe it's prayerlessness. Prayerlessness because you're disappointed with God. He's disappointed you in some way, and now you've become cynical about Him in the future. To all of these questions and concerns, Paul here essentially answers with, so what have you forgotten? What have you forgotten about what God has done for you in Christ? What have you forgotten? Or what have you perhaps maybe never actually learned? That's possible. That's possible. By the way, if, if, if really, if this is your first time as I prayed, if this is your first time hearing someone teach you this passage, I am so excited for you. <laughs> I, 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 I almost wish I could be you to, to experience that for the first time, what God might do in you to, to discover what's here. So it's no wonder that Paul, Paul won't tell us to do something until verse 11. Until then, he tells us about our history. But as we go along, you, you, you'll, you'll sense this. Paul will really grope with the analogies, um, but it's, it's not because that he can't write. He's a great writer, but it's because, Christian, your salvation your salvation has no parallel in the history of the universe, except for two events, except for two. In, in 2 Corinthians 4, 16, Paul says that, that our salvation is like the creation of the world itself, an event that has no other analogy or parallel in history. You, you, you can't say when God created everything out of nothing, it was just like that other time when when no. And Paul says our salvation is just like that. Or in Ephesians 1, 19 and 20, Paul says that God's work for us in Christ was like when God raised Jesus from the dead. Again, Nothing else like it in history, not even the raising of Lazarus. Lazarus died again. Nothing like it. Paul is groping for analogies, because, like the creation of the world and the resurrection of Christ, there is simply nothing in all of the universe, like what God has done for us in Christ. So if you sense Paul groping for analogies to, to make them work, that's why. there's no parallels. So, again, Paul puts it in short form in verse 2, we have died to sin. And he talks about sin almost as you would a person. And he says that our relationship with sin has fundamentally changed to the depth that death changes the the fundamental authority structures in a relationship. Sin was our slave master and we were, verse 6, enslaved to sin. Sin but our relationship has changed in relationship to sin such that sin no longer has any rights whatsoever over us period end of sentence again our relationship to sin has changed to the fundamental depth that death changes the authority structures in a relationship you might think of the government's rights over a person while that person is alive the government has the right to what to do what to tax us, to prosecute us, to draft us into its army. But when a person dies, the government can no longer do any of that. In the same way, sin no longer has the right to command and compel that we give it our energy and our resources or to condemn us or to draft us into its army. That's not to say that sin has disappeared. Think of a, an African warlord president, perhaps who's finally been pushed out of office. He no longer has any right to command the people to do his, his evil bidding, but he still roams the countryside stirring up rebellion. He's hard to get rid of. Or think of it in terms of uh, citizenship. Sin once had full rights of citizens, citizenship over us, but that citizenship has been completely broken by death It's now an illegal alien in us. Absolutely no rights at all, but again, hard to get rid of. And you expel it out of the country, and it sneaks back over the border on a different day. Now again, Paul has to stretch the analogy because there's just no other thing in created history like this. So, he has said, we have died to sin. Well, what what of us has died to sin? Because we're all still here right now. So, so, what has died? And he says, verse 6, our old self. And by old self, Paul means all that we were in our old way of life when we were in Adam. All that sin could, could have dominion over and have ownership over in us. All that was killed was crucified. The relationship fundamentally changed. The authority structures fundamentally changed so that now we are free from sin's rights over us. So then, verse 7, our old self died, and we have been set free or justified from sin. We are no longer duty-bound to sin. That is true about Christians. No matter how you feel in any given moment, the spiritual reality is that we have been freed to not sin. That's true about us. This is not to say that there will become some point in your life before you see Christ face to face that you will be sinless, that you will become totally sanctified. That's not to say that. But the spiritual reality is that you have been freed to not sin. That's the point here. That's what it means to die to sin. Sin no longer has any any authority over you. It is no longer your master. In our old self, we could not obey sin. We had to pay sin's tax levies and sit under its judgment and serve in its army. We had to. And it was only God's mercy that you didn't sin in every single way. That's what hell will be like. But we were still completely unable to live for God. But now, by faith in Christ, you are free to live to God. You are free. Let that sink in for a moment. Regardless of how you feel right now, regardless of what you clicked on last night, Regardless of the addiction that still lingers in you, you are free. This is true about you if you have trusted in Christ. Now, how could this be? How how could I so blithely throw in those regardlesses in there? How how could this actually be true? Again, how how could this be not a, a religious fiction? How could we not be just making something up up here? Paul tells us in verse 5 that we were united with Jesus. We were united with Him in His death and in His resurrection. So, what does united mean? Well, I think it means two things. First, we came under Jesus' lordship, out from underneath the lordship of sin. The context of this passage is all about who reigns or lords over us. You see that in in chapter 5 verse 21, then again in chapter 6 verse 6, and chapter 9 or verse 9, and then again the last verse of this passage, verse 14, sin will have no dominion over you. That's a thread that goes through this passage. It is all about who lords over us. And baptism actually pictures this. Baptism pictures a change of lordship. That's why he uses this phrase, we were baptized into Christ's death, into Christ. By baptism, Paul seems to mean both the, the ceremony and all the spiritual realities that the ceremony pictures. Faith in Christ and identifying with Christ publicly. The baptism literally carries the meaning of being united into and becoming one with, becoming a part of, often by, by burial in water is the sense of it. In those days, you, you could have made this sentence that the Titanic was baptized into the Atlantic. You might have said that. Um, and in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says that when Israel passed through the Red Sea, Israel was baptized into Moses from Pharaoh through the Red Sea, by being, by baptism, through water. And all of us, all of us, God has taken through our own exodus. As Charlie prayed earlier, we are part of the Israel of God, people who have trusted in Christ. We have gone through our own exodus, and God has taken us from the lordship of sin through baptism, through this spiritual reality of baptism into Christ, the new Moses. That is your reality. That is true about you. That's what Paul is saying. You no longer have a master that wants to suck you dry and leave you dead, but one who has freed you. Second, Union with Christ means that you have received all the benefits of what Jesus has already accomplished. You have received those benefits. They are yours. Not might receive, have received. His death to sin. So, again, what does this mean? Death to sin. When he died, verse 10, he died carrying upon himself all of our past, present, and future sin. Jesus came under the reign and lordship of sin, not because of his sin, not because of his sin, but because of our sin. And sin, it would seem, had the ultimate victory, draining him of all of his life. But God raised him from the dead, and sin no longer has any dominion over him. And we have been united to him. So sin no longer has any dominion over us. That's the math Paul is working out here. Sin's relationship to Jesus fundamentally changed by his death. And so you, when you believed on Christ, were united to him and all of the benefits. You were united to all of the benefits of what he did. Sin no longer has this dominion over you, verse 14, not because you beat sin, But because you are united to Christ and sin no longer has any dominion over Him. What is true for Christ is true for you. It does not depend upon you. It depends upon your Christ, your Messiah, your Savior. The one who has gone before you and done it all for you. It doesn't even depend upon the strength of your faith. It just depends upon whether or not your faith is in Christ. By faith, His death to sin is yours. Not will be if you believe hard enough. Not will be if you're good enough. N- good enough. Not was right up until the point where you really blew it. Is. Preach this to your shame. Preach this to your, your cynical, hopeless thoughts. Preach this to those thoughts that say that you can't break free from your old ways. You are dead to sin because God has united you to Jesus and to his death to sin. This reality that, that's true for you, you know, it could be broken under one condition, Paul says. Verse 9 if Jesus, the glorified, resurrected Jesus, could die again. Well, of course, that's impossible, right? It's impossible and that's the point that's the point it's impossible it's impossible for this reality that is true about you to be broken for you your union with Christ and, 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 and your baptism into Christ into all of the benefits for what he has done is as unbreakable as is Jesus' own resurrection life that's the point that's the point that, that is meant to fill up our faith we're just meant to look at this and revel in it. So then, verse 11, it's the first command of the whole book. Consider, or as other translations put it, count yourself, or as older translations put it, reckon yourself dead to sin. Reckon yourself dead to sin. Paul is saying, Let's do the math. Let's do the math. We are not pretending here. Christ died and became free from sin. You are united to him through faith, symbolized by baptism, so you too are free. No longer under the dominion of sin, but under the lordship of Christ who gives you life. You are free. Do the math. Do the math is what he's saying. Every day. Maybe every five minutes of your day, do the math. Especially in your darkest hours, do the math. Some of you may have heard me tell this story before, William Newell, the president of Moody Bible Institute a century ago, writes of traveling by steamship on an ocean on one of the darkest nights of his life, literally, there there were no stars in the sky, no lights on the horizon, just black, and he couldn't sleep. So, he goes up, and he talks to the first mate, and he says, how do you know where you are? is You know, because there's no stars, and it's before GPS. How do you know where you are? And the first mate brings him over to the map, and he says, three hours ago, we were right here, and since then, we've been traveling by dead reckoning, by dead reckoning. We're right here, we're right here." And the light of morning showed that the first mate was exactly right. They were right there, but they were traveling by dead reckoning. This is what Christians do. Even in our darkest hours, we do the math and we travel by dead reckoning. Even when sin holds some sway over us or when it feels like it does, we reckon ourselves dead to sin, not because of us, but by faith in what Christ has done for us. Faith does not create spiritual reality. Faith believes what's already true in Christ every day. Whatever sin is in your past, the way forward is not to try and do better, but to remember and rest upon what God has done. You are not your sin. You are free in Christ. And... Whatever sin was done to you, the way forward is to remember who you are. Your identity is defined only by what Jesus has done for you, or we should say to you. What God has done to you, that's what defines you. You are royalty because you are united to Christ. That's your identity. But... We have not been united to Christ just to come to grips with sin. God has a much grander purpose than this, and and we see this in verse 4. God united us to His death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk, walk, live our lives, he's talking about here, walk in newness of life. 4 Verse 5 If we have been united with him in a death like his, death to sin, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So, this is the second point, second and shorter point. See and hope. God united us to Christ's resurrection to give us new resurrection life now and forever. See and hope. God united us to Christ's resurrection to give us new resurrection life now and forever. So we keep doing the math. God united us to Christ in His death, but God did not leave Him in the tomb. He raised Him from the dead, and all that is His now is ours now. Jesus lives now in a resurrection life to God That resurrection life is His now. We are united to Him. It is ours now. Now. Life lived now and in the future by His resurrection life, newness of life. In other words, a life lived to God, verse 10, A a life that is alive to God, verse 11. So, what does this resurrection life actually look like? Well, The obvious point here is that it's new. It's different than your old life. Newness of life. But it's, it's not new in the sense of just different. It's new in the sense of increasingly like Jesus. Like the life that Jesus lives right now. Increasingly like that life. New in that way. So what does that mean? Well, it means at least two things. First, it means a life lived in joyful service to God, joyful, happy giving of ourselves up to God for the glory of God with all that we are, all that we have, every thought, every moment, everything, every piece of our bodies, every thought, everything, everything. It is a, a life of joyful, proactive seeking to do just what the Father wants, to glorify God with everything that we are. This is what Jesus is up to right now. This is, this is life. This is life. If you're like me, you, you, I immediately think, well, yeah, but I feel, sure feel a lot of the time like the way one of my offspring often obeys. <laughs> I, I pursue that, you know, <clears throat> You know, grumpily. (laughs) That's not Jesus' life right now. Of course not. So, what to do with that? Well, this leads us to a second and more subtle piece of Jesus' life lived to God. One that you must share in with Him in order to do the the first and more obvious piece, the, the glorifying of God. And it is simply this, that the happiness about God that Jesus feels right now, that's what we need, to be happy about God. That's what Jesus gives us. This is what it means to live life to God, to be happy about God. Why do I say this? Well, the eternal happiness of the Son for the Father that was, that was only interrupted once, think about this, in all of eternity, the, the perfect enjoyment and satisfaction that the Son had for the Father that was interrupted once in all eternity, beginning in the Garden of Gethsemane, it was interrupted as the Father turned His back and forsook His Son so that He would never turn His back upon us. When Jesus was raised from the dead more than anything else, what was life to Jesus was to be restored again in that happy fellowship to the Father, to once again be restored in in perfect joy and and peace, and as I keep repeating myself, happiness in Him. That was life to Him, to Jesus. So more than anything else, this is, I think, what, what Paul means in verse 10, that that the life Christ Jesus lives right now, He lives to God, face to face with God, enjoying Him. And this happiness is yours. Believe it or not, it's true. It is not yours to create, but to receive. It is not yours to create, but to receive from Jesus' own resurrection life. The Spirit brings this to us, and I'll refer you to Romans 8 to look at more about how that, what that looks like. But know this, this, this happiness is the engine, the motivation you need to live your life to God, to, to offer yourself as a living sacrifice to Him for His glory. This is why God united us to Christ that we would know this kind of happiness from experiencing God Himself. From within this happiness, we have all the desire and all the motivation that we need to walk in holiness, to walk in newness of life. So, where does it come from? Where does it come from? Again, take the math one more step. You are united to Jesus, and all that is His is yours. It is not just that Jesus is happy with the Father, but that the Father is happy with Him. You are united to Jesus. Brother, sister, the Father is happy with you. The Father smiles upon you right now. Smiles upon you. I don't mean this tritely at all. He loves you. He is happy with you. Our happiness with Him is found in seeing that and basking it, enjoying it. All because you are united to Jesus with whom the Father is well He couldn't be more well-pleased with His Son, Jesus, could He? He couldn't be any more well-pleased with you. Not because of you, (laughs) because of Jesus. So, does this mean He ignores our sin? Of of course not. No, He faces it. He faces it head-on, and now so can we. Because our sin cannot break that that happiness of the Father upon us, we can face it openly. Now, God relates to us the way that Jesus related to Peter at the end of John. You know, Jesus essentially says to Peter, you know, do you you still want to tell me that you love me more than everybody else? Do Do you still want to say that now after betraying me three times, essentially, what he says? Peter says, no, no, but I, you know, I still love you. And Jesus says, okay, well, then feed my sheep with a smile, I think. <laughs> feed my sheep. The gospel's still true. You are united to me. We can face your sin head on. Well, let's, let's get to the business of feeding my sheep. You're restored, not because of what you did, but because of what I've done. Let's feed the sheep. I still love you. And my kindness will still be upon you in the future, That's what Jesus is saying. So we tell ourselves our real story. We, we bask in the magnitude of all that God has accomplished for us, and we keep doing the math. We remind ourselves of our certain assured future. We are united to Him in His death, and being united in His death assures us that we will be united with Jesus' resurrection life. We will experience all the benefits of that. So one day there will be a full resurrection, and we will see Him face to face, and we will be glorified like Him. That is all true. Throw all of your hope there. Our sufferings and our tears will end, and we will know His life lived to God completely. But Paul goes beyond that here. He isn't just thinking about the far future, but also the, the now future, the, the future a minute from now that, that we keep experiencing as our, as our present. He, he's talking about that future too, that, that God, because we are united to Christ, God by His Spirit will continue to keep flowing Jesus' resurrection life to us every moment of every day. That is ours it is ours. So we are meant to walk by forward-looking faith in that truth that He will keep by His Spirit flowing that resurrection life to us and living in the hope, the, the long-off hope and the five-minute hope of that resurrection life. Christian, as you live, we might say, but between that past tense and that future tense, as those two realities press in on you right now, that's how you are changed. That's how you live in newness of life, by basking in the magnitude of what Jesus has done for you in the past and living in a certain assured expectation of Him flowing that resurrection life to you in the, in the future. And as you, as you live in that future, that assured future, you are changed. You will be new. Really, really, really. <clears throat> Faith looking back feeds hope looking forward, which enables us to live in love today. Love to God, love to neighbor. So, God must give us new eyes to see this, and, and if He would, He would burn away, it would burn away your disappointment with Him, and it would replace it with fresh times of, of happy childlike prayer. It would replace our cynicism about the future with hope. It would evaporate our, our boredom with anticipation of what, what part of the adventure lies around the corner? What, what if His resurrection life is coming next? It would diffuse our lust by giving us a confident expectation that the pleasures of God, sweeter than sin, are soon on their way. Faith in that evaporates lust. So when we see with these eyes we are finally empowered, finally to step into verse 12, to not let sin reign in our mortal bodies. Every other religion in the world and and all of us, when we forget the gospel, we reverse the order. We say, if only I could not let sin reign in my mortal body, then I will be free from sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. But that's not only not Christian, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. That's chapter seven. But we, Christian, we are walking miracles for whom God has tilted and turned upside down the entire universe to save us, to do this great work within us in Christ. We can lean hard on the promise that sin will have no dominion, no lordship over us, verse 14. Just like Jesus, we are free to live the happiest life there is to God, presenting ourselves and our bodies all that we are to Him. This is the happiest life there is. So, new year, new you. Well, only as much as you and I do the math and count who we are right now in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. So, Father, now I simply ask that you would by your spirit of uh, work. I trust you have worked. I pray that you would continue that work. As we move to communion now, cause that communion, that communion. We celebrate our union with you. Would you please fill us with your spirit? Cause it to be sweet. We are sobered by what you have done, but it is sure worth celebrating over too. So, we stand in awe of what you have done, and like a child at Christmas, we sit in simple delight in what you have done. Would you let that be the case for us here now, I pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this message recorded at the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcevfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is... Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.